thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted that you've joined me today. This is going to be a special episode because we're going to take some of what we've talked about over the last three weeks, and we're going to bring them into a real live current political situation to see how what we've been talking about applies. So if you've not listened to the first three episodes, let me, one, encourage you to go back and listen. Uh, But it begins with really this clip from Dr. George Grant taken from our Restoring the Vision conference seminar that we had back on May 15th about the importance of our understanding of who God is and why that is first and foremost and primary in all regards, even as with respect to matters of public policy. So let's listen to this clip and then we'll come back and I'll give you an example of how this comes to bear in a real life situation I was faced with this last week. We're to see every issue, every decision, all of life through the lens of the glory and the majesty of God because God is God and we are not. That means that from a policy perspective, everything begins not with anthropology, but with theology. Every time we come to a question of what should government do, uh, what should our local community do, uh, what should our uh, county commissioners do, uh, what should our city aldermen do, our first question ought to be, who is God and what has he done and what are the implications of that to the myriad of issues that we face? Now, the situation that arose for me this week that pertains to what Dr. Grant just said was an email I received from a colleague of mine in another state who does the kind of work that I do. And here's what he said in his email. During our last call, I mentioned that nearly all of our GOP legislators voted to support a Harvey Milk resolution. For those of you who don't know, he was somebody in San Francisco very overtly gay, and um, he continues on. Our organization is working on an article about this, about the resolution, and we offered senators a chance to explain their rationale before we publish. And I've done that a few times. Say, I'm going I'm to write something about what went on here. Is there anything you want to say? This is what he then said next. Well, this poked a hornet's nest. I just had a painful call with one of our best allies in the Senate, a strong believer, he says, who was very angry with us over, quote, threatening Christian legislators, quote. This is what the guy said to him. We're the only people up here standing against all these bad bills and you're attacking us over a non-binding resolution. She said the mood in the GOP caucus is now openly hostile to our organization. In addition, my local city council just raised the pride flag over Fresno City Hall for the first time in history. 
our new mayor, an outspoken Christian elected last year with broad support from the church community, initially opposed the move. He then flipped to endorse it after hearing the testimonies of LGBT constituents who, quote, moved him to tears, end quote. All this to say, I am frustrated as how best to respond. When elected friends betray our shared values, how have you most effectively pushed back while maintaining a relationship? And I don't know if you can appreciate what he was saying. Perhaps you've had these situations in your own family or at work where you're trying to maintain relationships but not give in on what your values would be. And, uh, of course, here in the political world, the, the point that he's making here is that these are the very people that I'm talking about having voted for something I don't think they should have voted for who control or have control, however you want to look at it, over whether uh, we're able to defeat bad legislation or pass good legislation. So, so uh, how, how do I talk about issues where they go off the ranch or the reservation perhaps while maintaining a relationship? Now, I want to be very careful here, and I don't want to sound condemnatory, but the question really, in some ways, is anthropology. How do I relate to my fellow human beings who profess to be Christians, but yet on particular issues seem to go in a different direction? And as Dr. Grant said, we should always start with our theology and let our theology determine the answer to the anthropological question. Now, what do I mean by that? I ran into this situation two years ago. A a member of our state senate um, was carrying a bill for us uh, that related to uh, an issue. I don't need to get into it. You trying to find his identity is not relevant. But essentially, he was carrying the bill for us and then decided not to carry it any further and wouldn't let us get another sponsor, and so he effectively killed the bill he had agreed to carry for us. I went home that evening, and I was just so frustrated, and he and I had had some sharp words over over what perhaps his motivations were and what things he might be fearful of if he pushed the bill and who he might upset and all those sorts of things, and he was mad at me for accusing him of having, you know, bad motives. and and. That night, I, I got in my bed, and, and I just had a little come-to-Jesus time with Jesus. And I said, come over here. I, I need to tell you, I'm working on something that, that looks good, sounds good, is consistent with biblical values and ethics, and this Christian guy essentially torpedoed the very bill he said he would carry for me. This just isn't right. And it was for me a Job moment where God said, Oh, so you believe I am the sovereign God? You believe that I am wisdom? And you believe that I have all knowledge? And you believe that I know exactly what I'm doing, but I didn't in this case. That I messed up. I didn't have this legislator do what you thought I should have him do. Now inform me, David, 
What do you know about what it is that I'm doing? Maybe I'm doing something in this person's life. Maybe I'm doing something in another area in relation to this bill that you don't know anything about. It was just like how God questioned Job. And I balled up on my knees and my face down into the mattress. And I said, oh, God, forgive me for the pride and the arrogance of not starting with the premise of who God is and letting that shape how I responded to the situation. Now I'm going to share another situation with you. A few years ago, this very committed Christian legislator, uh, father was a pastor, he became the chairman of a subcommittee in the state house. I went to him with a bill on a topic that would be admittedly controversial and he didn't want to carry it. And said, well, you know, you have to be careful when you carry bills like this that, that, you know, the leadership may not like. And he said, and if you're not careful, you get pigeonholed and then you can't be effective. And, and I looked at him and I said, look, I'm not asking you to run over to the speaker's office and poke your finger in the speaker's eye. I said, but you have to remember, it is not the speaker who makes you effective. It is God. God said, through Jesus, apart from me, you can do nothing. I shared with him the story of Jeremiah, and I said, Jeremiah did what God called him to do, and the people went to the king and said, you know, this guy never says anything good. All he ever says is bad. He's making the soldiers and the people afraid, and they threw him in a pit. And I looked at the legislator, and I said, so was Jeremiah effective? And he looked back at me and said, I'm not, I'm not going to say he wasn't. And I said, no, I said, I don't think he was ineffective. I think he did exactly what God had called him to do. And people didn't like it. But my guess is God was in that pit with him, in a sense, with his arm around him saying, Jeremiah, this is my boy. This is my son. I'm proud of you. I said, so don't, don't forget it's not that just God is the one who makes you effective. It is God who defines what it means to be effective. And so I would say to my colleague who wrote this email, let's begin first with God, what we believe about God, and then we have to decide if what we believe about God, maintaining a relationship with these legislators, is, is that critical. Now, I'm not saying, again, that we don't want to maintain a relationship. The Word says, to the extent it's possible with you, be at peace with all men. But the reality is we will not be at peace with all men because they hated Jesus. And just because somebody professes to be a Christian or goes to church with some degree of regularity doesn't mean that they actually know God. You see, these legislators believe that somehow what this colleague of mine says about them will determine their next election and affect how people vote for them. Because you see, God is not really in control of who sits on the thrones and the seats of power. And my colleague has to appreciate that, that these legislators will not thwart any purpose of God that God has for that organization. You see, when you start with your theology of who God is, it begins to change the way you look at everything. Now, I had another situation come up, so let me, let me drive this home. It came up uh, this week. 
And uh, I've been working on an amicus brief for organizations like mine to file with the United States Supreme Court that are arguing that Roe versus Wade should be re reversed. You may recall the Supreme Court decided about a month ago that it would uh, grant certiorari or hear an appeal from the case out of Mississippi where their law had banned abortions at 15 weeks. So I emailed all of my colleagues in my network and I said, look, I've been working with law professors, some good lawyers, they've written amicus brief, and uh, if you'd like to learn more about it, whether you might want to be a part of it, I'm going to have a conference call for you to ask questions and understand you know, what the brief is about. Well, one of my colleagues said to everybody, thank you for your work, but you know, there may be other opportunities for family policy organizations by other organizations, and we'll need to decide which one we want to be on. Now, that may be true, and as it turned out, I, I knew who the person was talking about. It's a nationally known, large, social, Christian, legal organization. And, and knowing this person, and knowing this person's affinity with this national organization, I, I took it as, as saying, hey, y'all, David's over here working on this, and we really appreciate this, but there's this, there's this big, nationally respected, in front of the Supreme Court all the time, legal organization, and they may write a brief, and you may wish you were on their brief instead of this one. Now, to be honest, that didn't make me very happy. I wasn't telling anybody if they got on the call that they had to sign on to the brief or they were making any commitment. I said, here's a brief we've done, and, and if you want to learn more about it, get on the call. And I decided, you know, that's just fine. Say what you want to say. And, and I responded and said, look, I felt led by the Lord to write this brief for certain reasons, and I've done that. And nobody has to be on the call. Nobody has to commit to do anything. I, I did what I believe God wanted me to do, and what he chooses to do with it is his business. But I think there was something there that was being said without being said, is if you want to impress the Supreme Court and the justices, you need to go with a big outfit that's known to them. In other words, it's almost the reverse of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians that God chooses the weak, the foolish, the insignificant in the eyes of the world to confound the wisdom of the world and the strong of the world and the influential in the eyes of the world. So uh, this morning, as I was thinking through all this, I said, I've, I've got to practice what I've been preaching. And, and uh, I went to, went to the book of Isaiah, where Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on this throne. He's, he's seeing a, a vision in essence of Jesus. And he sees the angels covering themselves and crying out, holy, holy, holy. And it changes who he is. It changes his experience. Now I'm just going to add in here today. We have a lot of churches that want to make sure you have a worship experience. And we spend a lot of time on the sound of the music and and uh, the type of music we sing, and the way we sing the music, and the lighting, and the graphics, and whatever else it is. A friend of mine said the other day, because we want to create a, a situation where people can experience God. Well, see, that's just exactly backwards. You don't have to create an environment where people can experience God. 
You proclaim who God is and they'll have an experience with God. That just shows that we are so anthropologically centered in our understanding of theology and worship that we have to create an environment because God himself and the disclosure of God and the revelation of God and the proclamation of God is not sufficient to change people so that they can experience him. It is exactly backwards. And then I read on in Isaiah and listen to what it says. This is what happens when you start with your, your anthropology instead of your theology. Notice the practicality of the political situation in Israel. Isaiah 30, listen to these words. Woe to the rebellious children, says the Lord, who take counsel but not of me and who devise plans but not of my spirit that they may add sin to sin. What is it that they've done? He goes on and says, Who walk down to Egypt and have not asked my advice to strengthen themselves in the strength of Pharaoh and to trust in the shadow of Egypt. You see what they were doing is instead of seeking God first, getting their theology straight about who God is and where their help comes from and who is the Lord and the sovereign over the, over the earth and over all the nations, they did what nations did. They struck an accord with Egypt. And so Isaiah goes on and says, Therefore, the strength of Pharaoh shall be your shame, and trust in the shadow of Egypt shall be your humiliation. He continues in chapter 31 with these words, Woe to those. I mean, woe. This is, this is in essence, a, a proclamation of, of a curse. A woe. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. Do you see what's going on here in these two situations I've given? Look, you need to go with the big national outfit name brand group because that's what influences, that's what affects things, that's what changes things, that's what does the work of God. Now, it's not that God can't work through big organizations, but when we believe that's where we have to go because that's how God works, we got it backwards. Same's true with my friend. I can't worry about maintaining that relationship if what they are doing is contrary to the Word of God. Now, there may be lots of different ways that I approach it and how I go about doing it, and I can go about doing it in mean-spirited ways, trying to manipulate them for the future, and that's just as evil. But sometimes you just have to say, here's, here's the story, and not be worried that, well, if I lose this relationship, I can't do my job, as if being able to do your job is dependent on something other than God. That's the whole point that Dr. Grant was making. God is God and we are not. Always start with God. And so Isaiah continues. I love this. So he's just said that they, they trust in their chariots and their horsemen, but who do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. See, they didn't go there first. And Isaiah continues, yet, and I love this, this is funny, yet he also is wise. Oh, yeah, I mean, God has some wisdom. Yeah, I, I, I see your point now, Isaiah. Isaiah continues, and he will bring disaster and will not call back his words. Now, there's, there's something we won't get into today, but see, that's telling us something about God, isn't it? That God issues his decrees 
before the very foundation of the world because God knows all things before they happen and they happen because God knows them. So he's not going to call back his word. So you were adding sin to sin. You were preparing yourself for the wrath that was to come. And Paul talks about that in Romans. Some people are storing up wrath for the day of judgment. And it says, but instead he will arise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. Now, let's, let, he explains who those house of evildoers are and who this help of those who work iniquity are. And notice that it's not just the Egyptians. In other words, it's, it's not just those bad legislators. He says, now the Egyptians are men and not God. That's what Dr. Grant was saying. God is God and we are not. Begin there with God. And their horses are flesh and not spirit. I love that. Don't we see that echo in the New Testament? The flesh avails nothing. Nothing. When the Lord stretches out his hand, whoo, there's a warning, isn't it? Both he who helps will fall, Egypt, and he who has helped, Israel, will fall down. They all will perish together. That's a strong, strong word. You see, in, in Romans, in the, in the first chapter, in verse 21, he says, Even though they knew God, they did not honor or glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, that's true of the unregenerate lost person. But we who profess to believe in God can do exactly the same thing. When we begin to look first to the anthropological situation and how are we going to work with these different groups and everything else without starting first with what do I know about God. And when we don't start there, we are guaranteed by the Word of God that our thinking will become futile. Oh, I hope you see how what Dr. Grant said was true, and it's backed up here by these verses in Isaiah and throughout all of Scripture. Look to me, turn to me. I'm wise too. I'm actually pretty strong too. I'm God. Why do you start at the wrong place, at the wrong end, and not let your knowledge of God then drive your understanding of the anthropological existential situation in which you find yourself. We're going to pick back up on this next week about our doctrine of God. Because if we don't get that down, Pat, then we will get off the beam. We will begin to do the things that I've talked about today, and I hope today has given you uh, a good examples of what it means to start with our theology rather than our anthropology. And I hope to have you back with me again next week. Thank you for being with me today on this episode of God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, 
please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.